Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Welcome back to another episode, and today's subject is going to be a subject very close to my heart, and hopefully will serve you or pass it on to someone that you love that you know this could really be of value to them. It's all about thyroid health, thyroid wellness, autoimmunity, Hashimoto's, hypo, hyperthyroidism, all of it. It's estimated that 20 million people in the U.S. alone have some form of thyroid dysfunction. And it's estimated that there's 200 million people worldwide. So there's a problem going on. And I have invited a wonderful man, Dr. Gil Kajiki, who has dedicated his life to helping people heal and thrive in their lives with autoimmunity. He is a certified functional medicine practitioner, a chiropractor, and a patient educator. And in this talk today, we go really deep on many perhaps less known subjects around how to supplement, how to heal, um, ways of healing, correlates to thyroid disease that you may not be perhaps so familiar with, such as supplemental treatments that you might not be aware of, deeper look at heavy metal chelation therapy and and why that may not always be such a good idea, the case of Epstein-Barr virus and its correlate with Hashimoto's. We also talk about molecular mimicry. We talk about the real story of wheat, de-inflammatory eating plans for health, the case of insulin resistance and how it affects the immune system. Another subject of the difference between between functional lab markers and Western, more allopathic models of diagnoses. This and so much more we go into in this talk that I really hope will again serve you or someone that you love that could use this information. As always, pass it on to those that you feel it could really change their lives. Enjoy. Dr. Kajiki, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm just really excited to break down the subject of thyroid, thyroid disease, thyroid wellness, that as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, one in four women have an issue with thyroid. Is that correct? I would say... That's pretty close. I mean, that, you know, the, depending on what statistics you read, it's pretty close between one and four, one and seven. Okay. All right. High enough. Yeah. High enough that it's just a huge problem that we should look at it more often. Has this been going on for centuries or can you see clearly in your experience, in the data, in the history of histories, that 
No, this is like a this is like a new twenty first century situation. I think it's been around a long time for centuries, but I think it's definitely more prevalent over the last probably two decades when our food chain started changing, our the industrial age started changing. I mean, never in history have we been hit with more pesticides, hormones, antibiotics, electromagnetic waves, uh, depletion of, of minerals and vitamins in the soil, stresses. I mean, never in history have we had this kind of, of battle with our environment. Right. And they didn't have that same battle two generations ago. So we're fighting a lot more. So we're finding there are more autoimmune conditions out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a sad truth. As your name suggests, <laughs> seaweed. Seaweed is a subject, a very contentious subject, I think, for people that have thyroid issues, but also there's a lot of talk of iodine deficiency, how iodine can help with EMF issues, how iodine is a necessary component for, you know, the building blocks of nature. What's your take straight up on seaweed for people that have particularly Hashimoto's where the thyroid antibodies are present? Yeah, I, I think one thing is I take a very scientific and objective approach to my treatment protocols. And yeah, iodine is a big, big topic of contention. Yes. And the thing is, everyone talks about iodine deficiency, but how many people really test to see if you have an iodine deficiency before you decide to take iodine? True. Or do you say, I have a thyroid dysfunction and iodine is necessary, so I'm gonna take iodine. I can tell you that very rarely do people actually test to see if their iodine levels are low. And if they do test, they don't do the proper testing. Because I tell you, iodine testing through blood serum to see if you're really iodine deficient is at least $100 for the one test. Hmm. And most people aren't willing to just test to see if they're iodine deficient. I don't give supplements based on what Google says or based on what symptoms are. I based it on lab test results and objective markers. So if you are really iodine deficient, then yeah, you probably do need some iodine, but you need to know how much, how often, how long do I keep taking it? Now there is research to show that iodine to Hashimoto's is like jet fuel on fire. Yes. So I go by the research. The research says, if you have Hashimoto's, no matter how iodine deficient you are, I don't give it. Okay. Not even a little seaweed in your sushi roll. Not even a little seaweed, because to me, the flare-up isn't worth the little iodine deficiency. You literally need enough iodine on the head of a ballpoint pen to have your sufficient amount of iodine for a year. Get out. Okay, that's not a lot. It's not a lot. Oh, that's interesting. It's okay. necessary, but you yeah. don't need that much. Okay. That's really insightful. Well, let's go into thyroid disease, particularly autoimmune thyroid disease, where you say in your book, most people that have hypothyroid really have hidden, if not, if it's not blatantly obvious, Hashimoto's disease. Hashimoto's. 
So we'll talk about that and how really can you break down that it's not the thyroid that's the problem. It's it's being attacked, but it's the immune system. Can you break that down for our listeners? Yeah. So let's just take autoimmune condition in itself. So autoimmune means your own immune system. And you will break down the type of autoimmune condition based on what body tissue it attacks. So if your own immune system attacks your joints, it's typically called rheumatoid arthritis. If your own immune system attacks your intestinal tract, it's called Crohn's or diverticulitis or celiac disease. If your own immune system attacks your pigmentation, it's called vitiligo. So depending upon what type of body tissue your immune system is attacking is how we would classify the autoimmune condition. In Hashimoto's, your own immune system attacks the thyroid. And so really, if you think about if your own immune system is attacking the thyroid, which one is the problem? It's the immune system. Right. The immune system is the bully. The thyroid is the poor victim. Yes. So why put your focus into the thyroid if it's really an immune system problem? Mm-hmm. Well said. So correlates. Now, people that have been down this road, it's not going to be news to them that most people that have been diagnosed with Hashimoto's have some positive titers for Epstein-Barr virus. And we know there's a lot of correlates between Epstein-Barr virus and potentials for cancer and all these other things, MS. What's the deal with Epstein-Barr? Why does it attack the thyroid? Why the thyroid? What's What's this about? I think there are, there are several core, uh, theories out there, but one of them is molecular mimicry. Okay, yeah. So the molecular structure of that Epstein-Barr virus is very close in nature to that thyroid tissue. And so when your immune system wants to attack that Epstein-Barr, it may also in, t- in turn attack your thyroid tissue. Wow. Now, I have never heard that that could be applied to Epstein-Barr. So breaking it down molecularly, it could. Does it look like that broken down genetically? It's a it's a close enough structure. Wow. So in other words, it just to be simple about it is maybe this Epstein-Barr is a six sided type of virus and mm-hmm. that and that thyroid gland is a five-sided type of vir- of, of molecule okay so they have those with gluten too they're called gluten cross-reacting proteins right That's where it's going to get into in some people's body soy looks like gluten even though it's not mm-hmm. and soy is not a friend for most people with thyroid many people not yeah maybe on down the line they can have it but a lot of people when they're trying to get through that acute stage or, or get past this flare-up stage, yeah, they, they really have to stay away from that. Now, I've been down the road, and this is why I have you on, because I've been down the road in my healing process with Hashimoto's. I'm doing pretty good. I take a very small amount of compounded thyroid, um, but I've, I've had to go take the journey, and I woke up about 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And I was like, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm not taking this pharmaceutical anymore. This Synthroid thing is not working for me. For me, maybe it works for other people. I don't want to judge. This is my body, you know, and I'm a sovereign being and there you have it. But I also came to be aware of the gluten. And I remember talking to the head endocrinologist at a major hospital where I live. 
and I said, have you seen these studies between the correlate between this, just what you're talking about, the, the mimicry of the body mistaking when they eat gluten that it's, they think they need more thyroid. The body goes, oh, let's pump it out, TS, T3, T4, what have you. And she said, no, I've never seen this before. I don't know if she's telling the truth and it's just she's following a, a rule book or, you know, a particular script. Or she literally was ignorant to the fact that this has been around for quite some time. Yeah. Who knows? But the bottom line is I'm now at a place which is really interesting. And I want you to comment on what you think about this. And I'm going to have this other person in the future soon on my podcast because I think it's really important. And it's the subject of gluten and particularly bread. And I find that a lot of these gluten-free breads have fillers in them, gums in them. And as you will can go into in a moment here, the correlation between gut issues and Hashimoto's, all those things in these gluten-free breads, even potato, which has solanin, which is um, a toxin <laughs> and inflammatory, that's not helping your gut, thus not helping your thyroid. So here's the deal to cut to the chase. I started realizing that our ancestors ate bread the way it was supposed to be made with two strands of, I believe, the lactobacilli, the yeast, the way God intended to make it. And then after World War II, so that they could make get more bread on the shelves because of the shortages, they took that out, they changed the formula, and thus all these autoimmune, particularly gut issues, went on the rise. And so now, for someone who's been like gluten fearful for 10 years, I'm now eating daily like sourdough bread that I know for a fact I get from a baker that has been fermented God's nature's way, 48 hours that naturally takes out the gluten. I feel amazing. And I know it doesn't affect my thyroid because if it did, I would immediately get a migraine or I'd feel horrible. I feel like I was poisoned by, you know, <laughs> the KGB. So <laughs> the, bottom, the bottom line is I feel great. And I think that's a lie that is worth kind of unwrapping here, that it's not that you can't do, can't do wheat. It's that you can't eat the food that's not really food that is aggravating your thyroid. What do you think about all that? I agree with that. I, I, it's like you're right. The, the food structure has changed so much. It's all about profit now. It is not yeah. about health and good foods. And, you know, I have this very simple rule when I start with people, when, when they're starting with me as a brand new patient, I say, look, you could have any food on this list that has one ingredient on it. Okay. Yeah. If it has more than one ingredient, I want you to stay away from it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's processed. And right. unless you find it from a specific source or you make it yourself, you don't know what else is going on in there. Yes. Yeah. So I just don't want people taking chances on processed foods because they're not as educated as you. They mm -hmm. don't know how to read labels really well. They don't understand what these scientific names are, are poisons and gums and additives and fillers. They don't understand that. But if you stick with the one ingredient label, you will be safe. 
Yes. Now, part of your protocol in reading your book is that you, one of the things you do is you put people on anti-inflammatory plants. Right. And I want to break that down because like I just sort of touched upon, these nightshades are obviously inflammatory or can be inflammatory. Potato has solanin, which is a, is it a glycoalkaloid, I believe? It's a, it's poison that the, yeah. And, and then the oxalates, like the kale, that inhibits, or I be, think it pro, creates thyroid, what? Eh, that's, a, that's a bit of a myth that these, okay. these kales, yeah, are, are creating these thyroid issues. So what say you on plants? What's good? What's bad? What do you suggest for your patients? Well, my, my anti, my, I actually call it a de-inflammatory eating plan. Okay. All right. And so it's not so much plants, but what I do is I take out all the potential inflammatory foods. So I take out gluten, soy, dairy, yeast, grains, nightshades, eggs, nuts, and seeds. Okay. The only thing that's really left are animal proteins, Yep. most vegetables, and low glycemic fruits. Those are all whole natural foods, one ingredient only. And you create your meals based on that. The reason why that plan works so great is not because of the foods you eat. There's nothing magical about lettuce or cucumbers. But there is something very magical about taking away all the gluten, the soy, the dairy, the nightshades, and all these inflammatory foods. So it's not really a, 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 a anti-inflammatory plant-based diet. It's really more of an anti-inflammatory eating plan where I take out these potentially inflammatory foods. Okay. How does insulin resistance for one of the markers you check, how does that influence your immune system? Oh boy. Well, insulin resistance is like the boy who cried wolf, right? You've called on this insulin to come open up the cell door so many times the cell just says, no, I'm not going to respond to this. So that insulin is being released, but then it can't be used that creates an inflammatory cascade. That in itself is part of the reason why your HbA1c levels rise. HbA1c is not necessarily a blood sugar marker. It's really more of an inflammatory marker. It's really telling you your glycated red blood cells are getting inflamed. Huh. Does that have something to do with homocysteine levels? Um, not really. Homocysteine is more like your methylation pathways and okay. how you process these B vitamins. Okay. Do you see any correlation? And some people will be like, what? Do you see any correlation with G6PD and people with autoimmunity or particularly Hashimoto's? As a I don't methylation? want to say that I have, I see a correlation, but definitely, um, there definitely is a inflammatory component with people who have that marker. Okay. Okay. So kind of getting back right to you, your experience, your, your direct experience with everyone you've worked with, how many people have you roughly, would you say, reversed in treating them, reversed their Hashimoto's? Gosh, I've been doing this probably 14 years of all the patients that I've seen, probably half of them are Hashimoto's patients maybe in the mid 500s okay 
Um, and I've got about a 98, 99% success rate with these Hashimoto's patients. That's amazing. So 400 ish. That's huge. Um, and if a thyroid, cause this is sort of a general belief, uh, if a thyroid that has Hashimoto's where it's like you look at it under an ultrasound, it looks like craters of the moon because so much tissue has been eaten away. So you've been on thyroid supplement for a while. You've atrophied the thyroid to, I imagine, a good degree. What is the likelihood? It's kind of a two-parter. What is the likelihood that you will have a 98% success rate with someone who's been on thyroid their, their, their thyroid looks like craters of the moon, so you know it's been eaten up, it's been atrophied, but let's say you get all their sort of viral levels down, you get the toxins, the inflammation, you get everything regulated. Can the thyroid jump back online and they do not have to take any thyroid supplement the rest of their life? My opinion, yeah. no. <clears throat> My opinion is no. Okay, if that if that thyroid is so damaged that it can't create the appropriate amounts of thyroid hormone to make that physiology run like it's supposed to, you will either need a thyroid glandular or some kind of a thyroid medication. Okay, I personally don't have a problem with thyroid medication. If you need it, you need it. If you allow this Hashimoto's to go on so long that you have damaged thyroid gland and it can't generate the appropriate amounts of thyroid hormone, you need some kind of glandular or thyroid medication to make up for what it can't do. Got it. Now, there's a naturopath, one naturopath I work with, and he says that part of his practice is he tends to give really his older patients, like over 50, very low doses of natural glandular because he finds that they age more gracefully because our soils are so depleted, our our nutrients, you know, our sources are so depleted. And um, and just it's kind of like the way we've sort of, for lack of a better word, de-evolved. <laughs> and so we we tend to thrive better. What do you think about that? Um, you know, if that works for him, that works for him. Okay. My criteria is patient symptom response and lab test markers. And they don't always correlate together. Sometimes people feel great and their lab markers look lousy. Sometimes their lab markers look, you know, they're, they're, they feel lousy and their lab markers look great. But right. in terms of glandulars, I don't just give a glandular because someone's in their senior years. Sure. If their symptoms say they need it, and they respond well to it, and their lab markers are showing that this glandular is helping the lab marker stay in the normal range, I'm all for it. But I will not give it just because you want to age more gracefully. Let's go into that, the markers, because I think some people listening may not be aware of the <laughs> big difference between the functional markers in yeah. medicine for labs and the Western-based markers. Can you go into that and how that's very different as far as it comes to a diagnostic model? Yeah. Well, if you get your blood drawn from any major laboratory like Quest, Western Sciences, LabCorp, you'll notice if you look at the ranges there, it never, ever says normal range. Yet your doctors will explain it that way. It says interval reference or reference interval it never says normal range 
And the way these lab ranges are created is they're created in a bell curve from region to region, lab to lab, state to state. So the range for TSH in Los Angeles is going to be very different than the range for the TSH in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is different than Dallas, which is different than Miami, which is different than New York. And the way they get these ranges is they take a segment of that population from that lab, they put them in a bell curve, they throw out the highs, they throw out the lows. That is your quote unquote normal range for LabCorp or Quest or whatever it is. So these ranges change wherever you are in your region to adapt to that type of demographic. So how do you, gosh, how do you determine what is sort of the universally accepted range? What to you is your language that you see based on your experience, what a healthy range is? What is that? So we use what we call functional ranges. So we are not looking for disease or pathology, like LabCorp and Quest, their range looks for disease and pathology. I'm looking for dysfunction. I'm looking for early disease prevention or early disease detection. So I will catch these markers in my abnormal range because my range is tighter before LabCorp does. And so the way we get our ranges, and, and there are several places that we get our ranges, probably as a functional medicine doctor, you decide where you're going to get it. But I get these ranges where what we did was we took that same kind of segment of population. These people aren't on medication. They all claim they're healthy, no disease processes. We put them in a bell curve. We throw out the highs, they throw out the lows. And this is our functional range. And I keep that same range, whether they're from the eastern side of the country, the southern, the western, the northern, I keep that same range. And so that's my goal. My goal is to get them into that functional range so that it stays consistent through everybody. Hmm. Thank you for breaking that down. When you test, looking at your book, some of the things you test to see what's affecting or, or running the immunity or or the uh, thyroid, how it's affecting the thyroid. One of the things you test is, and I saw that you wrote this down and just wanted you to clarify this, dried urine. What do you mean by that? What is that? So th- there are different testing methods are better at finding different, what I call triggers. Okay. okay. So dried urine is a method that uh, a company called Precision Analytics came up with. And you basically pee in a cup, you dip in this dried piece of paper, you let it dry out, you send it to the lab. And then what the lab does, it takes their these metabolites from your urine that you urinate out with, and they can test for cortisol levels, sex hormones, male hormones, you know, things like that. So they use a technology where they're testing for metabolites and you and like blood serum would test for production levels of hormones and saliva might test for what we call free fraction hormones so all depending upon what you're looking for you use that particular type of testing method i don't use the dried urine method much anymore but i have it available for me because if i need that type of testing i'm not just going to use what's at my disposal i'm going to use what's appropriate Mm, okay that's interesting well, more most people that have thyroid issues are women. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Okay. Yes. 
So which leads me to the next question. Is there a hormonal component? Why women? What is it about women that they're the bearers of this brunt? <laughs> yeah, that I'm very sorry for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know the answer to that question on why is it mostly women? I'm going to say that based on my testing redo that I do, yeah. it's not necessarily a hormone issue because every Hashimoto's female patient that I have doesn't have a hormone issue. I'm one of them. My hormones are as I've never had an irregular cycle. Right. I don't have PMS, P, any of that, right. no issues. Right. So I'm not going to say that most women who have Hashimoto's get it because of hormones. I don't know why it's mostly women. I really don't. <sighs> I, I wish I had an answer to that, but I, I don't. Your next research paper. <laughs> Correct. I'm much better at treating than researching. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. Uh, yeah, stick to that. Um, wow. Okay. Well, the next thing I kind of want to jump into is this idea that most people that go to the doctor and aren't maybe privy to people like you aren't aware of other sources where they could get treated until yeah. maybe a friend tells them about it or they listen to a podcast like this right they have insurance they think it's like you know that's the gold standard okay they got insurance they can go to the doctor and they're not still not getting answers i mean how many times i'm sure you see this every day they've gone to every doctor that they could possibly go to in the system right. and they're still not better and so maybe we could just break down this this misbelief that if you know the idea that first and foremost insurance doesn't save all because isn't it true that certain insurance companies they they will only they they're in bed with certain pharmaceutical companies and treatment plans i think of when i worked in uh, a, the hospital when i thought i was going to be a medical doctor many, 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 many eons ago. And I was working on the cancer floor. And I remember talking to this woman whose mother was dying of cancer. And she was so irate. And it's so funny that this story stays in my head decades later, but it really stuck with me because her mother was dying and she didn't find out till like the, the last you know, the, the 12th hour that when it was like too late, that the chemotherapy that her mother was receiving was the wrong therapy, the wrong treatment for this kind of cancer. And it actually made it metastasize. And if she went with a certain, this was very treatable, but it was the only one that the insurance company covered. Okay. Therefore, they went with plan A instead of out of the system. Right. So I don't know. I'm kind of like talking in circles here, but could you add to any of that? <laughs> yeah. This is a frustration that I go through daily. I have consultations daily with people who have this frustration. And they don't call me first. They call me last after they've exhausted all these other insurance resources. Here's what you really have to understand as a patient, okay? And to advocate for yourself. Number one, understand insurance is a business. 
It is not a profession. They are not out there to help you. They are out there to make a profit. If they don't make a profit, they drop you or they drop the procedure. So understand this is all about money, not about how well they want to treat you. If you go get your opinions about your health from conventional medicine and you use your insurance, you pay a small copay, you have to understand and accept the fact that they are influenced by the pharmaceutical and the insurance companies. These doctors get educated by the pharmaceutical reps. They get influenced by the pharmaceutical reps. That's just fact. That's just the way it is. No one has ever disputed me on that. So when it comes down to treatment for your condition, whether it's cancer or thyroid or an infection or a broken leg, you will only get the treatment that the insurance company approves that they feel is medically necessary. And you will only get the treatment that the pharmaceutical companies approve of. Because there is no medication for Hashimoto's, they will always treat your thyroid. And they are trying to use a thyroid medication to treat an immune system problem. That eventually won't work. So you have to decide if you're going to deal with that and accept that and keep going through that frustration. Or you go outside of that kind of medical system to practitioners like myself, where I don't take insurance because I don't want to be influenced or bossed around or put limitations on by the insurance company. And I want to treat as naturally as possible so I can't be influenced by the pharmaceutical company. So I can really, truly get to the root cause of the problem. You know, it's so interesting. It makes me think of another story which just kind of rocked my world. And this is not, this is not like a money story. It's just, it's astonishing. And you just see how this system, how it's set up. And a dear friend of ours had like uh, really uh, complicated diverticulitis surgery. And, um, and he's doing great now. And this surgeon, Harvard trained, brilliant, top of the top, like the guy to go to. And he left his profession temporarily to, I think, really try to reshape the insurance companies, insurance you know, system. And uh, it didn't go well. And now he's back doing being a surgeon because there's just so much lobbying around it and power and you what what have you. But our uh, we were talking to him and and uh, and he's friends with his surgeon and said, how much did you get paid for that surgery? And this was like a five hour surgery. And he said, oh, I got paid fifteen hundred dollars. And I said, get out of here. You're kidding, right? Like, wait a minute. That's, Im- that's impossible. <laughs> right. And he said, what do you think this whole system's built on? He said, you know who's getting paid is the hospital. The hospital's making the majority of the money. He worked for a hospital. So he was a servant to the hospital system. And so the only way that he could even, as a Harvard-trained surgeon, top of the top, he had to do what you're doing, get out of the insurance uh, you know, arena system, and now he gets paid up front and doesn't work with insurance. Otherwise, you know, he can literally not put food on the table. Right. Right. <laughs> As a top surgeon in probably the world. Right. Yeah. 
Shocking. Uh, you know, people just have to understand that insurance is not designed to pay for everything. It's designed for the unknown, catastrophic, and it's a gamble. You're betting the insurance company that yeah. you're going to win this, and they're betting against you. Right. Right. Well, let's circle back to some treatments for thyroid that are out there, and I'm going to kind of just spitfire some to you. Tell me what you think. Some I swear by, but forget about me. You're the expert. Tell me what you think. Number one, 10 past ozone because of bringing down viral loads, bringing down inflammation. What's your take on ozone as a treatment for thyroid disease, particularly high dose ozone like a 10 pass? And maybe we can explain that for those. That are... um, I, I, I would question its efficacy for thyroid in particular. I applaud ozone for generalized good health. Um, I, I am an advocate of it. I recommend people get it, but I don't think it's a uh, acceptable treatment specifically for thyroid. Okay. What do you think it does do? Um, I think it oxygenates the system very well with yeah. this pure oxygenation, which, as you mentioned, it's a natural antimicrobial. Yep. It's going to pump up the system with high levels of oxygenation, which means all the cells are going to function better. It's a natural antioxidant, so it's going to lower the oxidative stress levels of the body. I mean, it's just really going to be, I mean, it's almost like a hyperbaric chamber in a way. You're just mm -hmm. getting it injected or breathing it in or drinking it through your water. Right. Okay. C-naltrexone. Now, there's been studies of using that in very low doses yeah. for bringing antibody titers down. What's your take on that? Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of 50-50. I think it works great for some people. It doesn't work so great for other people. Okay. Um, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's such a low dose. It's pretty harmless. Um, but I don't think it's the panacea for I'll do this and it's going to fix my thyroid and my Hashimoto's. Okay. NAD. Once again, I think my, my philosophy is this. You have to know what's wrong before you know what to do. And I think if you know what kinds of triggers you have, what kind of dysfunctions you have, and NAD fits the bill, absolutely take NAD. Okay, that kind of brings me to the next one, which would be, I guess, after you test and you see they have heavy metals, chelation therapy, do you recommend that? Or would you say go the fulvic acid, kind of like more, um, you know, uh, not pill route, but, you know, um, farm, uh, uh, nutraceutical route? Like the binders? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you something about, about heavy metals. Okay. Yeah. Heavy metals are not the problem. Okay. The load is not the problem in your body. Okay. The problem is how does your immune system combat that load? Okay. So for example, if I gave a hundred people the same amount of lead, you not even being a doctor would know not everyone is going to react the same. Right. Some people are going to fall over and die. Some people are going to get sick. Some people say, give me more, which that, that pr proves to you. It's not the load. That's the problem. It's your immune system reaction to the problem. Mm. Now, here's where you have to be very careful about chelation. Just because you have high levels of mercury, lead, or aluminum in your body, that doesn't mean you have to get them out. Okay? You have to test your immune system to see have they created antibodies to these heavy metals. 
because these heavy metals tend to settle in different parts of the body. Aluminum likes to settle in the brain. Hmm. You see high levels of aluminum and you start chelating or using binders and you find out that you have antibodies to aluminum, your immune system will start running to your brain to start attacking those aluminum particles and you will have yourself a horrible brain reaction. Wow. I've never heard that before. That's pretty crazy. I had a personal chiropractor friend that happened to. He got, he found out he had heavy metals. He got chelation and he created a horrible microglial reaction in his head. When you have a microglial reaction in your brain, it's like a Tasmanian devil with an AK-47 just shooting around in its attempt to kill off these and these aluminum antibodies and you, there's just collateral damage in your brain he he lost a lot of his brain function he couldn't function as a chiropractor he lost his marriage he lost his house he lost his practice i mean five years later i was talking to him he was renting a small room in somebody's house wow so you have to be very very careful about chelation just because you have high levels of heavy metals that doesn't mean you have to get them out Wow. I mean, that makes me think just total kind of going off-roading here for a second, but it relates. You know, when we see these children with autism and they talk about the, uh, you know, I won't say the word here, but the correlation of the, the childhood, you know, program. Right, that have heavy metals in them. Yes, that have heavy metals. It's That's not an opinion. You can look it up yourself. But, um, and aluminum being one of the most toxic things known to man, it was in many of these probably still is as far as I'm aware. Um, and that goes beyond the blood brain barrier, right? Right to the straight shot to the brain. Right now. What do you do to get the, that out of the kid's head? You can't give them chelation therapy. What do you do? Wow. Well, you know what? You kind of like let a sleeping bear lie. If it's not negatively affecting them, if they don't have antibodies and you could, there are tests you could see if they have, antibodies to this aluminum or heavy metals if they don't have antibodies to them it's probably safe to do some chelation if they have antibodies you have to leave that alone or get that immune system to the point to where it's not going to react to those antibodies now just so i'm understanding this because my brain's exploding a little bit if they have antibodies to aluminum does that mean they have probably a high load in their brain not necessarily. It just could mean that their immune system has tagged that for future destruction. Okay. And, and then if you disrupt it, if you get it out of the tissues into the system, like the lymphatics, what chelation does, and the immune system says, oh my gosh, there it is again. And it goes after it. Now to test heavy metals, some people say hair, some people say blood, some, you know, what's your take? How do you test heavy metals? What's the best process for that i think if you're gonna test for heavy metals i think blood is going to be the best because you want to know what's circulating in the system hair is after it's been processed urine is after it's been processed now i'm going to add to that because some will say even in these tests and I think maybe you touched upon it just a minute ago, if I'm correct, that this gets held, this gets held, it can be held in the fat, this can be held in the organs, it can hide. Right. So it's not in the blood, it's right. in the organs. So how do we know, I think of this one doctor, Dr. Rashid 
oh, I forget. He cured his son of pretty, pretty, uh, pretty intense autism, and and he's fully thriving. He put him on a protocol, whatever he did. But he was talking about how these heavy metals. He he tested his son. They were very low, but he knew because of after getting those. He just went full blown into non-function, and so he knew. Even though it said they were low from his acuity, he knew that it was hiding, and he had to get it out. What do you say about that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's true, but I I think you have to be very keen on that patient history. I'm a very close relationship. You know, watch that person's lifestyle and and and. I don't know that you could do that as a doctor seeing a patient, you know, once every two to three years because it was his son. I think he had a very intimate knowledge of what was going on and how long he'd had this and where these these uh, heavy metals were hiding out at. Yeah. Now, we went into some things that could be potential treatments. One more thing I actually wanted to, to or supportive um, methods in, in helping the immune system. I heard you speak on another talk and just in passing, I remember you mentioned you have a homeopathic that you find works really well with your patients. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, homeopathics are very specific for different conditions. Um, I have a extremely effective Epstein-Barr homeopathic protocol that I use. Okay. Very, very effective for Epstein-Barr. Now, I will tell you this. I don't believe that you ever kill off Epstein-Barr. Okay. I believe that you help that immune system combat it and you can get into the remission. But this Epstein-Barr protocol that I have, the reason it works very well, though, is because I don't just go after Epstein-Barr. When I, when I find there's an early antigen that Epstein-Barr is active and replicating, I will make sure that I calm the inflammation down, calm the blood sugar stability down get in there, heal the gut, stop the foods, get rid of the food sensitivities. And then I implement this Epstein-Barr protocol with homeopathics. How many people have Epstein-Barr? Is it like 80% of the population? 90% of the population has already had it and it's their bodies have put into remission. So the statistics are if you run an Epstein-Barr IgG, 90% of the people come up positive. Okay. Wow. But there's something very unique, special about Hashimoto's and, and hypothyroid patients where about 80% of my Hashimoto's patients have a current replicating Epstein-Barr infection. How do you know it's replicating? IgA? Yeah, you look at a, a test called early antigen, IgG. Okay. So if the early antigen is positive, you know it's it's early, early on in the game and it's replicating. It's early on, like again, in its next cyclical phase of replication. Right, right. Like it okay. reactivated and Got now it. it's replicating again. Damn. Okay. That's really good to know. What are some others that you see? I've heard of cyto like cytomegalovirus is a big one. What do you see? Do you see that as a correlate? Um, I don't see very many cytomegalovirus. I mean, in terms of viral infections, it's primarily Epstein-Barr. But 
you know, I focus on so many other areas. Like I'm looking for anemias and it may not just be iron. It may be B12, B1, B6, folic acid. I look for blood sugar instability. So I'll look for reactive hypoglycemia and insulin resistance. I'll look for adrenal gland dysfunction and cor abnormal cortisol levels, HPA axis issues, right? With hormones, it's not always a production problem. Sometimes, it, or a lot of times, it's a receptor site problem. And it's a clearance problem. It's it's rarely a production problem. Hmm. So there's so many other areas that I look for other than just viral, let's say. Even in the gut, I find that there's a lot of dysbiosis, the imbalance of that good bacteria. I find oftentimes H. pylori. Oftentimes I find candida. Oftentimes I find high levels of these opportunistic bacteria that are supposed to be low levels, they're high levels, and we look at that as an infection. What so, about like a gram-negative bacteria? Do you find yeah, that? Yeah, we, we find those two, probably not as often. Okay. Quite as often. Whew. Well, let's kind of, I uh, got a few more questions. So what about a lot of women, <laughs> I can't even believe I'm asking this question, but a lot of women like to use Botox, and then people that have autoimmunity go, uh, I think I'm smart. I'll use Xeomin because that has less protein, so I'll have less of a reaction. W well, it's still a toxin. I mean, it, it is a toxin. Okay, the argument is it's in small amounts. Oh, yeah, the argument is it just stays in the tissue. The But we know there's a study, I think, from Sweden. Don't quote me on that, but people can look it up, that they found that when you injected it in one side of the face, or the side, one side of the brain, it traveled to the other side of the brain. Um, and so if someone's really interested in cranial nerve function, well, if you're freezing part of the face, you're affecting your cranial nerve and that can affect, you know, <laughs> neurodegeneration perhaps. What's your take on Botox, Xeomin, any of that stuff, even fillers and autoimmunity? Gosh, you know, I... did I open a can of worms here? <laughs> you hit a nerve. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> to use a chemical <laughs> and injecting it into your body for cosmetic reasons is just insane in itself. There is nothing about that that's remotely a good idea to do, even if it's harmless to you. And then having autoimmunity on top of that, you're just stirring the pot, asking for multiple autoimmune conditions to come into your life. I'll stick with the dent in my forehead. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice expression of my passage in time. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, you know, I give that same example or talk to my patients who ask me, what do you think about Botox? And I give them in, in the same tone of voice. Yeah. It's just not a good, I mean, what are you more interested in? Right. How great you look or how healthy you're going to be? If it's how great you look, I'm the wrong person. I, I can't work with you. Right. Oh, good stuff. Is there anything that I've left out of this conversation? I, I feel like I'm going to get off with you and I'm going to have 20 more co co uh, questions to ask you here, Dr. Kajiki. Is there anything else you can leave the people that are listening here with to not only they first and foremost, they can go see you, Avi, but just to kind of wake them up from perhaps, perhaps their slumber of yeah. <laughs> whatever's present. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, review our discussion that we talked about, about seeing conventional medicine and using your insurance, because you have to decide if you're going to stay in that game or you're going to get outside of that game. Because if you haven't gotten help by now, you're not going to get your help. If you decide you're going to go outside of that kind of model to people like me and seek alternative forms of care, here's what I'm going to encourage you on. Be more concerned about what's wrong before you want to know what to do. Everybody wants to know what to do. What do I eat? What supplement do I take? What, what can I do about this? I don't know. I have to know what's wrong before I can know what to do. And every Hashimoto's case is different. Every hypothyroid case is different. So the way I start with everybody is this. I want to find out what's causing your symptoms. And I look for nine different triggers. I look for anemia, blood sugar instability, adrenal gland dysfunction, hormone imbalance, inflammation, gastrointestinal problems, food sensitivities, chemical sensitivities, hidden infections. And then I want to know, do you truly have a thyroid problem? So I need to run all 10 thyroid tests. I'll know if you actually have a pro thyroid problem and I'll know if you need medication. Once we've done that evaluation to see if you have those triggers or a thyroid issue or an autoimmune Hashimoto issue, now I can tell you what supplement to take. Now I can tell you what kind of diet to do. Now I can tell you what kind of lifestyle changes to make. But until I get that information about what's wrong, I cannot tell you what to do. Mm, thank you for that. I just have two more questions, I swear, and they'll be quick. Number one, is this genetic or is that even matter? It does matter because I believe there's a genetic disposition, but I don't necessarily believe that just because your mother and your aunt and your grandmother have autoimmune that you have to get it. Right. So there is a disposition, but I don't think it's a guarantee. So that means you do everything else in your power to try to avoid getting this autoimmunity because you've already got strike one against you from genetics. Right. You can turn it off epigenetically. Yeah. Do you agree? Right. Okay. Two, um, can, can children get this? And what do you do if someone who's like 12 and has anybody titers yes absolutely children we we've had it before um we treat them just like an adult does we look for these triggers we see if there's an auto uh, thyroid component and we just tone down the treatment protocol you know we give maybe a quarter to a half dosage of these supplements and we just have to be very aware that it's a growing body it's, it doesn't always react like an adult but i mean imagine catching your autoimmunity as a child I know and what to get. Be able to do something about That's, it at that point. Totally. That's what I. I wish that was the case with me, but yeah. my parents only knew what they knew. Last yeah. question: With these experimentals that have landed on planet Earth, there are some people that will say, "Oh, well, I have autoimmunity, and and per the protocol out there in mainstream, oh, I should take it because." You know that helps with people they'll say well the people that have immune issues the 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 people that are older um things like that they're the should be the first in line they should be the people taking this now we could say just stop at experimental but also i'm looking at nine pages of side effects one being hashimoto uh, uh thyroid encephalopathy <laughs> and so one uh, in tiny print but one of many potentialities and also not being a licensed product and a list goes on. But what is your take? Does it have a 
uh, and there's studies coming out that it, it actually enhances autoimmunity. So anyway, throwing that back to you, answer it how you like. <laughs> well, I work very closely with an immunology lab in, in Arizona, and they're called Cyrex Labs. Is All they do is autoimmunity. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, the head researcher there who owns a company, he, he's, he's in the know with the research. And the last I heard from him was this. If you get these, you're very likely to come down with an autoimmune condition. Yikes. If you don't get and you have it in your genetics, you're very likely to come down with an autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of pick your poison. <clears throat> right. Okay. Now, what it boils down to, though, is this, is what is your cytokine load if you get the infection or what's your cytokine load if you get the vaccination? That's a great You question. can control that before you get either of those. Oh, that's deep. Oh, that's great. Okay. I really control my cytokine load, right? I do all the right things. It's my, I live a very boring life, but I do all the right things. Congratulations. Right? So <laughs> I take my vitamin D, I take my quercetin, I take my A, I take my short chain fatty acids, right? I exercise, I have good sleep. I do all the things right. So if I come down with an infection, I will get over it very quickly with a very small cytokine load. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Our bodies are meant to handle a lot and yes. we have billions of viruses in us already. Mm -hmm. So the fear of a virus and look, I'm not a doctor. This is just my opinion, but you know, fear porn is alive and well, I guess I should say. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we, like, like you said, we, we've had these viruses for eons in our population. We have gotten through it. Right. Exactly. Right? But the more we try to manipulate our genetics with external chemicals, right. the worse off we are going to be. Yes. Well said. Great place to end. Dr. Kajiki, this has been very enlightening, very informative for me, who comes to you with, you know, some heavy hitter questions. So thank you for your patience and, 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 uh, you know, really lobbying it back to me with much grace and uh, great new information. So thank you so much. Where we can find you will be on the show notes. And, you know, I'd like to see you. I'd like to, I'd like my whole family to see you just for their own immunity. Why not? So thanks a million. Thank you very much for the time. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.